Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. I'm Adana Shallow, Senior Global Manager here at the RSA, and this is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's lunchtime event and to introduce you to our guest speaker, Beck Evans. Just a couple of years ago, Beck was working in publishing innovation when she spotted and seized the opportunity to turn her side hustle, Prolifico, into a successful startup business. She now works as a writer, speaker, and innovation coach, and she's the author of How to Have a Happy Hustle, noted as one of the Financial Times' top books for 2019. The book distills the knowledge and experience Beck gained as a startup founder herself and adds interviews and insights from a range of innovation experts to create a practical toolkit for anyone with an idea that they would like to get off the starting blocks and on the way to becoming a life-changing reality. I personally really enjoyed the book because it touches on the RSA's research heritage on the makers movement, innovation, design thinking, and creativity. And particularly because it really demystifies many innovation concepts into digestible practical nuggets, which many of us can use, especially those who are currently interested in nurturing an idea and getting it out into the world. So I know this will be an invaluable talk for our RSA audience here today and amongst our fellowship Changemaker community also watching online. So it's really a great opportunity to hear from Beck today and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from our conversation and to hearing your thoughts and comments as well following her opening talk. There will be plenty of time for you to contribute before we wrap up at 2 p.m. And don't forget, if you're joining us online, please get involved in the conversation on Twitter. The hashtag is hashtag RSA Hustle. So without further ado, let's get started. Please join me in giving a warm RSA welcome to Beck Evans. Thank you so much. It's an absolute delight to be here today. And I'm going to be talking about how to make ideas happen. And I'm going to run through some of the approaches and techniques that you can use to um, start up side projects that will give you skills and experience you can apply in this kind of complex and changing world of work that we're in now. And that's how I got started. I was working um, in innovation, and I remember when I first, my first day there, I thought my job was all about coming up with these world-changing sort of products and services. And I realized quite quickly that you can't disrupt an industry on day one. What you have to do is build a culture of innovation. And my job was all about working with my colleagues and with the business, so they had the skills and the confidence to be able to come up with ideas, choose the best ones, and make them go forward. And I think that's the really amazing thing about innovation, is it's a skill. It's one we can all learn. But before I dig into how to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about hustle. What do you think about when I say the word hustle? Does it bring to mind 1970s disco? <laughs> you know, the dance, Van McCoy. What about 
con artists. The hustler out to trick and deceive you. Or how about the, the kind of startup hustle? It's called the grind, you know, the work hard, sleep when you're dead. This kind of really toxic uh, mantra that's going around at the moment. I really love the word hustle because it's complex, it's contradictory, and it's changing all the time. But when I talk about hustle today, I'm talking about side hustle. So a side hustle is work that you do in addition to your main job. It's something on the side that you often do to earn extra income. But it's also not a couple of things. Um, work is changing a lot now, and uh, the gig economy has really erupted. And a side hustle isn't the same as the gig economy. And it's also not the same as um, sort of monetizing a hobby. A hobby is something you do for its own pleasure. A side hustle is most often done for extra income. So let's talk a little bit about the era of the side hustle. So there was research done last year by Henley Business School, and they found that one in four of UK adults had a side hustle. It's a huge number. And um, it's not surprising, really. Work is changing so fast. The whole structure of it, the job for life is gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. People have multiple jobs. They change their jobs faster. They have portfolio careers. They become what's called slashies, where you have multiple streams to your kind of job. And that, that makes so much sense, because we are more than our nine to five. So if you want to do more or be more, it kind of makes sense to go and do something on the side. And that's a chance for you to use more of your own skills and experience. But it also gives you a chance to get new skills and experience. So, it's a really aspirational thing, which is why it's different to the gig economy, which is often forced upon people. So people want to have a side hustle. So I asked them, why? And I was surprised that the top answer wasn't wasn't about those skills, and it wasn't even about the money. What they were looking for was fulfillment. And that is exactly what the Henley research found, which was a much, much bigger study, and much more rigorous. 73% um, of people who start a side hustle do so to follow a passion or to explore a new challenge. But we're so often held back. We feel that we don't have the time we feel we don't have the skills, the experience, the confidence. These things stop us starting on setting up something and exploring new avenues. But in writing the book and speaking to people and researching to this subject, I believe that if you do want to make ideas happen, then you can. There are approaches that are used the world over in innovation agencies. They're taught in business schools and universities that you can learn those and you can build those skills. And that's exactly as Adana said at the beginning. It's what I was doing. My day job was in innovation. 
But in my spare time, in the evenings and the weekends, I was working on a side hustle, and that's now my business. So it's not a secret how you do this. You don't need to pass exams. Um, you don't need permission to do it. You can follow these approaches and build an attitude. And that growth mindset is so important because we want to go out into the world curious and open to ideas and opportunities. And that will also help us build the resilience to cope when things don't go to plan. Because in innovation and making ideas happen, nothing ever goes to plan. So let's talk a little bit about how to make ideas happen. So I said earlier, it's something we can learn. And that's really important because we want to debunk that myth of the, you know, the innate genius, the inventor who creates things by themselves. They're gifted at birth with this skill. And I'm also going to suggest we put aside the idea of passion, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. This is something we can all do if we want to. And I'm going to show you how one person in my book did that. Now, I want you to meet Anne-Marie Imafeden. Some of you might have heard of her. Uh, she founded uh, STEMETS, which is a social enterprise that gets uh, girls and young women excited about STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, and maths. Now, Anne-Marie is an exceptional woman. She achieved more by the time she was 25 than definitely than I will in my lifetime. Most of us will. But she's a real role model. And a lot of the process that she took to get STEMETs off the ground, that's, we can learn from that. And we can apply that in our own lives. And we can also be inspired by her mindset and her attitude as she was doing that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things she did, and I'm going to dig in about what we can learn from that. So in terms of the story of STEMETs, Anne-Marie was over in the States at a conference when she heard a keynote speaker say that not only were women underrepresented in science and technology jobs, but that the percentage, the figures, they were going backwards, that there was more women working in technology in the late 70s and early 80s. And that kind of just blew her mind. She just, you know, how on earth can that be the case? So she kind of got really curious about that as a problem. And when she came back to the UK, she started digging into it. She got really curious about this. And she found it was exactly the same in the UK. The number of women in technology was going down. And it was just crazy. She felt so determined she had to do something about that. And she felt she had an idea that if you make an intervention earlier in a girl's life, while they're still at school, you can encourage them to choose to study those subjects, and that opens up the careers later on in life. So that was her idea. She had a problem. She came up with a solution. And she started working on it. She spoke to people. She did research. She had a first event. And she built a community. She started working with these young girls and women. And she did all of that while working full-time in an extremely demanding job uh, in the technology department of an investment bank. 
So let's dig in a little bit about what she did. So the first thing she did is she started really small. She, she gave it a name. She called it the Stemets Project. It was a project. It was something she was just going to look into. She started having a conversation. She spoke to people about this problem. She found out what they knew. Then she um, wrote about it. She blogged about it. She started to get this further out there, find out what research was there. And then she set up that first event, that very, very first event. And these are all very small things that each of us can do. Talk to people, write about something, explore something. And it's really important that we take these really small steps. If we set ourselves a big, ambitious goal, it's going to intimidate us. We're going to procrastinate. We're going to hold ourselves back from doing something about it. And that makes complete sense from a neuroscience perspective. The amygdala gets completely freaked out by big, scary things. So if you take small steps, you're able to kind of bypass the fear center of the brain. And by taking small steps and doing things regularly, you start to rack up those wins that give you the momentum that will keep you going long term. So the second thing that Anne-Marie did is she had an experimental mindset. Her background is science, so she was really used to the idea of having a hypothesis and running an experiment. And she treated the STEMETS project like an experiment. What she had to do is get something out into the world, like say that first event that she did, and use that as an opportunity to gather data and to gather feedback on her idea. So she could hone it and improve it all the time. And that was really important because things don't always go to plan. So some of her experiments failed. But by having the right mindset, you know, her idea hadn't failed, just that experiment failed. She hadn't failed, it wasn't something personal. Just that experiment failed. And that helped her keep going and give her the confidence to keep trying when things go wrong. So really learning from those failures. Then the third thing she did is she involved people right from the get-go. The first thing she did is talk, ask people, do some research, find people who knew about this space. She built mentors who could give her advice on what to do. And as she started running more and more events, she built this community around her. And there's this phrase that people often use in startups, so it's a, bit, it's a bit overused, actually. But it's that you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think this is a really important phase very early on when you're building an idea, because you want to be surrounded by people who support your idea. You want to have people who are championing what you're doing, but you also want to have people who are going through the same thing. So um, early on, I went on a, a startup accelerator. And accelerators are really good for this. What they do is they put you in a cohort with other founders who are experiencing the same thing. And you can turn to them for advice and support. But they also bring in expert advisors and mentors who can help you. And then building a community 
what Anne-Marie did with STEMETs is, I don't know if you've ever seen one of their events, there's been stuff on telly, it's a really passionate community. She has a tribe of STEMETs, girls who are so enthusiastic about learning about these subjects. And that, again, gives her huge momentum because she's doing it for them. Okay. That's a little bit of an insight into how to do stuff. I'm going to finish off by talking about the happy. So having a happy hustle isn't about following your passion. Personally, I think passion's a bit overrated. You know, I am British after all. Um, some people have burning passions, but not everybody. And that can intimidate us. It's like, do I know if I really care about this enough to spend the time and energy to make it happen? I would say, put that fear to one side and instead engage with what you're doing. And I also think that you shouldn't monetize a hobby either. Hobbies are something we do for fun and personal fulfillment in themselves. And sometimes trying to make money from them can destroy all the pleasure you get from them. Okay, so happy, not passion, not hobbies. So if we forgot passion, what do we do instead? I think we get annoyed. In my book, I talk about this group of men who met in a pub, and it's in Bristol, it's called the Pipe and Slippers, and they were doing that thing over a pint or two that so many of us have done, where they were saying, we could have an idea, we'd be really great at this, you know, we should really do this. And they kind of got themselves all geared up over probably another couple of pints. So they decided to give it a go. And they realised really quickly that you can't create ideas in a vacuum. Innovation just doesn't happen because you want it to. And to trigger ideas, and this is what innovation agencies and universities and all sorts of people do, is you look for problems instead. And that's what they did. They formed a club and they called it the FFS Club. I think you can work out what that stands for. I'm not going to swear. I am being recorded. Um, but they, what they did is they looked for those moments that got them cursing, the stuff that got them really angry. They invited people they knew to come in and talk to them and tell them what made them angry in their lives. And that gave them loads of problems that they could set out to solve. And what happens is when you start digging into something, you get kind of, well, I do, lots of people do, really geeky about it. It's kind of obsessive. You get really interested. And this is why I think we need to forget passion, because there's been lots of research done on this. Um, Professor Angela Duckworth from Penn University, she's been researching grit and resilience, and she writes about, she calls it the maturation story. And she says that, we don't know what's going to interest us until we go out there and do it. Um, she actually says, the process of interest discovery can be messy, serendipitous, and inefficient. And it's that process which gives us so much fulfillment. 
getting interested in something and engaged with the world is what makes a difference and gives us that kind of pleasure and happiness that will keep us wanting to go on and explore things. And I've particularly found that the case with, I mean, you'll, it will be all entrepreneurs and business people. They're really enthusiastic about what they do. But if you speak to social entrepreneurs, even more so, because they're doing something for other people. They're on a mission to make things better. So, happiness. Philosophers have been arguing, discussing, thinking about happiness for millennia. And I particularly like this quote from John Stuart Mill. So I'm just going to read this a second. So the happy people have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness, on the happiness of others, on the improvement of mankind, even on some art or pursuit, followed not as a means, but as itself an ideal end. Aiming thus at something else, they find happiness by the way. I find this a really helpful quote, and I agree with him. Because if we look at it closely, he's saying the people who are the happiest are those who are looking outwards into the world. They're engaged with something beyond their own desires and needs. They're interested in other people, as he says, the improvement of mankind, which is basically it's problem solving. And he finishes by saying they find happiness by the way, along the way. It's a process. It's a journey. Just as making ideas happen is a journey, it's a whole series of things that you do. And I believe you should be able to find pleasure and enjoyment throughout that whole process. So you can start by finding problems to solve, by having empathy with people, finding out what's going on for them and understanding that, and then building your own skills around creativity and innovation to come up with ideas that you can test and build and improve and learn to experiment. And when things go wrong, you will learn from that and keep going. And we shouldn't underestimate the importance of other people in this journey. Researchers have found that 70% of personal happiness is down to our connections with other people. So make sure they're involved in what you're doing. Share your ideas early, sell them in, bring people along with you. But I'm not going to sugarcoat it, because making ideas happen is really hard work. Um, particularly if you do have a full-time job, if you've got family and caring and other responsibilities in your life. It's not easy. I mean, that's why it's a hustle. It's hard work. But if you want to do it, you can. You can learn from the tools and techniques that are available to you. You can build your confidence as you gain new skills and try them out in the world. You'll grow and learn from the experience and have fun along the way. I really do believe that you can have a happy hustle. 
you just need to start. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. You go. There we go. Thank you so much, Beck. Um, I was really struck by this book. Uh, what came through for me was what you said to the audience earlier, that passion is good in its place, but problem solving is actually the, the driver. Yeah. One of the other things I really loved about the book was that um, I think it was in the section, Having the Idea, you described empathy as an innovation superpower. Yeah. Um, Tell us, how do you define empathy and how can we cultivate it as a practice uh, so that it could fuel our side hustle? Yeah, so in innovation, we use something called empathy maps. I don't know if any of you have heard of them, but it's just a very simple pro forma you can download for free on the internet and it just gets you to ask questions about what people are going through. But the first thing you need to do is, is speak to people and ask them what their experience is. Mm. And it's about not making assumptions. Mm. So by speaking to people, trying to understand what they're going through and framing it in their, in their words, it's just the, the, the very initial starting place. Yeah, so how can people ensure that they don't go into their own echo chamber? Because that was the other thing I thought that could yeah. be a little hole you could find yourself in. How do you ensure that you don't reinforce your own bias, yeah. but, but ensure that you know, the, the community that you build around, uh, similar to Anne-Marie, actually tests your idea in a really meaningful way? Yeah, so we are the worst judge of our ideas. And the most dangerous thing you can do is fall in love with your idea. Yeah. What you need to do is fall in love with the problem you're solving and the people who have that problem. Mm. It might be something that you had yourself, and many founders come from a deeply personal experience. Mm. But by focusing outward and checking in with people. So I'm a very strong advocate of always testing your idea and testing really, really early. So literally giving it a name, learning how to describe it, and telling people about it. And you don't ask, is that something you would like? You know, you'd say, <laughs> you know, you ask them a genuine question about what they're experiencing. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the biggest test of an idea is getting money for it. So if you're selling something, that means you're, you're genuinely onto something. Because if people are prepared to put cash down mm. on an idea, then... Um, you're onto something. But also for social entrepreneurs or charities, it might be if you can get funding or investment. Mm. The other thing, um, for those uh, in the audience and of course watching online, I thought the book was such a good checklist if you're sitting on a little idea, you do it for like five years, 10 years. And just how the book is set out, have an idea, hone the idea and making the ideas happen. I think people become overwhelmed and you mentioned it really well in your presentation by doing something. And they think, if I do something, it has to be big or it has to be perfect. What was key for you in the book was how to start small. And mm. you even referenced it in, with Amri, do one event. Yeah. Um, how can we ensure that you start small, but it's big enough that it builds momentum and keeps you motivated? There's, there's lots of different approaches to that. And I think some of this will come back to how people f find the time to do that mm. as well. Because the f whenever people need to make ideas happen, I always ask them to think of the smallest thing they can do. And, you know, can they do that thing 
tomorrow? Or can they do that thing today? And it's, that really helps you focus on, because if you're starting to say, well, I, I'm, it's not going to be for, it might not be next week or it might be next month, you're already starting to put stuff off. And there are really, really small things that people can do, particularly around research or talking to people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going to chat to one person every single day. So you could go out and discover your interests by speaking to one person and just go, what's really annoyed you? What's gone wrong for you? Yeah. What kind of problems are you facing in your day to day? You can fit that in, you know, at the bus stop, at work. You could start to do research and build momentum quite quickly. Mm. And what I've really found with founders and entrepreneurs and people with side hustles is that it's like this tipping point they're suddenly really into it where not doing it just doesn't feel like an option yeah. and again that's a good test of an idea and that if you do want to do it there is there is the time and it's like you can't not do it mm. on that topic of time <laughs> You know, people have full-time jobs, they may have a partner, yeah. have caring responsibilities. How do people find the time? What, what are your top tips? Yeah. So the first thing they have to do is want to do this. And I don't think anybody should be under pressure to have side hustles. It's not, you know, it is an aspiration, but you want to have to do this. Um, and then you have to find out what a priority it fits in with your life. And particularly, I've done my business, uh, Prolifico, we work with writers. My background is working in publishing. And we've run some quite long studies with different types of writers. And I, we found that there was four ways that people fit um, side projects into their life. And writing is a, is a classic side hustle. It's one of the most popular ones, actually. Um, but... I started asking that of entrepreneurs as well, and it fits into the same four patterns. And that's, um, I'll just run through the four now and we can talk a little bit about them. But there's the sort of people who do sort of spontaneous work, mm. people who do scheduled work, people who sort of um, binge on it, and people who fit it in as a daily habit. And they're completely different patterns, and we will have preferences as to which one works for us. But we will also have, you know, the realities of our life about what we could do. So, in a lot of research about productivity, having a daily habit always comes top. Yeah. But I actually think it can be quite a toxic because we compare ourselves against that, yeah. and it's not possible for most people. But if you can have a daily habit, it's a really effective way of moving things forward. Other people seem to schedule, and I think this is a much more representative of the kind of over-busy, overwhelmed lives we're in now. So looking across a week or two and finding slots and blocking them in and treating them like any other appointment in your life. Mm. So it's like, well, I'm going to work on this idea for this hour then. Um, you have people who work spontaneously, so they're always on the go, and they just grab any opportunity. So cancel trains, uh, cancelled meetings, all sorts of when things arise and they're just ready to go and they just take whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes or an hour when it arises. And then you have the kind of the deep dive binge absorption in it where you might book a whole week and yeah. just go, I am going to move this thing forward. And in innovation, they often run sprints. Yeah. And that's a really design good sprints. way. Design, and it just transforms an idea or a product or a service because you've got it works across five days and you do different things on each day and at the end of it you've you've basically transformed what you were doing yeah and that would work for the binger and Definitely. the key is to yeah. set an objective for every day yeah. and have deliverables so treat it like a project that like you would in work yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's like i'm too busy now but in four weeks time or two months time yeah. this is what we're going to do yeah yeah 
Um, before we open out to the audience, I know a lot of you have many questions. Um, I really like the, chap the section on making the ideas happen. Particularly, I was struck that you started this section on feeling. Yeah. And it was almost, reading it, it was almost like you were making an appeal to the reader to get used to feeling. Like, feeling is not just part of the process, it's a critical part of the process. Yeah. Can you expand on this a bit? Yeah, so um, when I was kind of in the, the startup world, it's failure kind of gets glamorized quite a bit. Yeah. And I think British culture is slightly different to American culture as well. But um, when people talk about failure, the, the point is to, to fail fast. So you fail really early on in an idea. So that's a way of learning. So don't wait till you've built a whole product and put it out into the world, into the market. You want to test if people want it, if they'll buy a smaller version, if they'll commit to something. Um, because if it fails, you haven't invested too much time or money. And particularly, you get that sunk cost where you're really invested in your idea and you've spent months or, or years working on it just to find it doesn't work. So it's almost like you need to rack up quick failures as you hone your idea. Yeah. So do things really fast and really small. But yeah, you have to, you have to get learned from it. It's, resilience is everything. Yeah. There's, a very, there's some statistics that 90% of startups fail. And there's this other statistic, and you might be able to work out whether it's genuine, but it keeps catching my attention. 90% of first businesses fail. 80% of second businesses succeed people drop out in the middle. Mm. So there's a success bias, but mm. actually what you need to do when you fail is pick yourself back up and try again. Yeah. Okay, I think it's an opportune time to open it out to the audience. Uh, we have ushers on the aisles, and if you have a question, please raise your hand and be brief. Uh, we'll try to take probably two or three questions at a time. Any questions? We have a lady here. Thank you. I found that was most interesting. Um, you mentioned finance briefly, and I think finance can be a stumbling block. It's not the innovative idea that you have that fails. It's often sources of finance, people who will not lend, particularly banks and so on, or will only lend too little. I was lucky because I started, well, for sad reasons, my business with a legacy and that helped enormously because I could assess my own risk. I didn't have a bank assessing it for me and deciding it was too risky. So I think that is a big obstacle to overcome. And I'm glad you talked about schools because I know I owe a lot to my school which was taught sciences to women from the 1890s on and certainly I benefited from that although I'm not in the scientific field, I'm in a rather more technical field. But you're right on the button there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Take this question. Hi. Um, you were talking about failing fast. Yeah. I think it's more failing uh, cheap <laughs> in yeah. that respect. Yeah. And so do you have uh, any frameworks that you can utilize to test different theses uh, or pro for products? Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the software world, there's A-B testing and whatnot. So your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, both of these are involving money. And I think um, when I ask people what stops them 
working on their ideas, the, the top two were time and money. And I think the money is a real uh, perception issue at the beginning. It's not a real barrier often when you're getting started. And I think people, it's important if you're growing a business that yes, you do need to get um, investment, particularly if you are working on particularly uh, tech or innovative ideas. And I think this is why the idea of the, the side hustle is so prevalent at the moment, because if you're doing something on the side of your main job, you're protecting your, your outgoings and how you live. And that's really, really valuable for people. And I think, you know, you shouldn't dive straight in and quit your job and just do it. I think that's really very, very dangerous. What you have to do is test your idea and get enough traction. And you get to a point where you do get enough feedback to know it's going to work. Um, there are so many different frameworks that people can use, but I would say um, it's about looking at commitment from people. So I'll just talk fairly generally about that. But um, asking for money or getting money is, is, is really the best proof of an idea, and again and again. So people look at things like um, crowdfunding, Kickstarters, and you can do that before you've got a real product out there. So what you've done, it's hard work getting a Kickstarter out there, but you need to be able to be able to pitch your vision and what, what the thing is that you're doing in a meaningful enough way that it will connect with people and they will put money up front. And if you reach a certain amount, you've got funded. Um, so that's one way of not spending your own money building something, but finding out whether people want it. But actually asking people to pay for something and um, in, the, in the tech world and the startup world, you're really encouraged to ask for money very early on for quite, um, for, almost for prototypes, for MVPs that aren't finished. And they're quite embarrassed. And there's that saying that if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you know, you've, you've, it's, you're too late. So you need to almost get that commitment from people very, very early on. Um, in the startup world, there's you know accelerators that invest. There's you know the A, B, C rounds that people do, and bank loads. There are sources of finances, but but generally with the kind of traditional side hustle, people earn money often from day one. They they make something, they put it online, and they get money for it, and that's what helps keep them going. So what if you're not involved in a for-profit making mm -hmm. uh, venture. Um, I know a lot of our fellows are involved in a social enterprise yeah. or doing a local community project. How do you measure success if it's not by money? Yeah, so if we take Anne-Marie again, mm. so her events, uh, she has, she, they're, they're fun, they're free, and you know, and there's music and there's food. It's like she has her kind of like her, her sort of the pillars of what makes up a STEMET event. And the whole idea is that if she was going to do that, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't charge the girls for it because that defeats the whole purpose. So it's social enterprise. Mm -hmm. So she was able to get investment from different things. So there she got a loan from a Telefonica O2 to help set stuff up, uh, private investment. And now she's in very firmly in that, that third sector where it is about getting loans, getting investment, getting grants to build the programme. Yeah. Wouldn't you also advise people to call in favours? Because I know oh, a, lot of, a lot of people who are involved in side hustles. I know a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, and that's a way to leverage resources as well. Absolutely. I think everything is about calling in favours. <laughs> All is about calling in favours. Because you don't know what, what your, your friends, your family, your, your peers can 
do mm. until you ask and you don't know what you can offer them either yeah. so I you know tell people what you're doing really early it's a great test and it's a great way to bring people on board yeah. any other questions it's Liddy here um, I hope this is on point but my question was when you're around people you don't know yeah. and they ask you what you do what do you say? And is that the right question? Mm. I, I want yeah. a different question. So I ask things like, what keeps you busy? Yeah. Not totally happy with it, but working on it. Yeah. yeah. So that's my question. How do you answer? And is that the right question? Yeah. So let's take, let's take one yeah. more question. There was a hand in the back, no? Go ahead. Um, we've spoken a lot about um, managing input. So whether that's money or outputs such as failure but um, in any of your conversations um, did managing energy come up so what you put in um, to the business and actually being smart about that so it can carry on rather than burning out from the beginning which I'm sure is very tempting to do yes. yeah yeah that's two good questions yeah no. I'll answer how, what do you do when yeah. how to manage your energy so I'll ask about, is that the right question? And I actually think it, it probably isn't nowadays because when we describe what we do, we do multiple things. So you might end up saying, you know, I'm trying to think what I would say, am I a, a founder slash author slash speaker? You know, I'm a slashy. You know, I would say all of those things. But to be honest with you, I answer depending who I'm speaking to and where I'm at. You know, again, it's thinking like, well, what's going to be of interest for them? There's no point me saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a startup founder or I'm a CEO because actually that would be completely meaningless if I'm talking to my eight-year-old nephew. You know, so it's actually what, what would he understand or how do you have that conversation? So asking people, you know, what they're interested in or what was the last thing that caught your attention or what intrigued you last or what really annoyed you last, you know, those are better, I would say, probably better questions. But I think the whole era of work at the moment is that we are so much more than a job title. And, you know, we're not all in a Richard Scarry book where it's a doctor meeting a farmer and meeting, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. So in terms of managing energy, it's that that's the whole that's the thing. And that's why I think that this toxic startup grind hustle hard mentality is it just has to it has to end it's completely unsustainable and it's it's not big it's not clever it's not going to be helpful nothing is working if you aren't working your idea is worthless if you don't have the energy and the enthusiasm to to, to work on it so um what i'm really interested in and i talk about this in the book it's more about the bits that we do each day so thinking of Success isn't something when you launch it. It isn't something, it's not this end point because it never, life never works out like that. So I personally, and most founders I know who have a good work-life balance, focus on the small things every day. And I think it's really important. I talk a lot about, uh, you know, if you come from the failure perspective, but reflecting on things. So literally every day I write, you know, what went well, what didn't go so well, what am I going to do a bit differently next time? And there's so much research on being grateful for what's there. And just focusing on things like that improves your mood and how you feel. And just checking in on yourself. You know whether your energy is good or bad. And if you are doing a side hustle and it's the early days and you're really struggling to fit that on alongside full-time work, just taking time to think about, 
you know, when is the right time for me to work on this? How frequently should I work on it? Thinking about your own body clock, it, it, you know, your levels of cortisol and energy, they change so much throughout the day. So understanding what works for you. Um, I think it's great to get inspiration from other people, but, you know, don't compare yourself to them. Learn from them, you know. Try things out. Experiment with your own energy levels. Yeah. Any other questions? Young lady here. Hi. Um, I was wondering about the thing you said about it being an echo chamber. I think that's very easy for people to do, and I, I see it all the time. I come from an art background, and it's the total opposite. You spend a lot of time around people who heavily critique everything you do. Yeah. Um, so like, what's the balance? Because I personally believe those people who have lots of horrible things to say about what you do are some of the most important people you can have around you in terms of feedback, but it can be really demoralizing. You just think, oh my god, I'm so mediocre and horrible at what I do. <laughs> so where do you strike that balance between those five people you're supposed yeah. to be around? I think you have to learn how to receive feedback. And feedback isn't, it's not easy to take often. And I think um, we're not very good at giving feedback. I don't think people learn how to give feedback. And you have different techniques you can do it. And it's, you might get feedback and it can be incredibly hurtful. But what you have to do is step back and think about what really works. And it's your choice what you accept and what you reject ultimately. Because particularly, you know, say you're on a, a startup accelerator where you get a huge amount of feedback in a very, very short space of time and it can feel really overwhelming. You know, a couple of days later, I generally believe that you, you remember the stuff that really lands. You know, you make notes. I know people record stuff. You know, separate yourself so you can view it a bit more objectively. Um, but the feedback that really matters, it's great to have mentors and I think people should have mentors and expert advisors around them. But they also need to have, um, uh, the most important feedback is from your audience. Mm. So they would be the people who are using your products, seeing your art, paying money for your services. So they're the ones that really, really matter. And so that's a different metric that you get there. Um, but you also need feedback from, I think, peers as well. And there's this idea of you have your, your plus minus equals. So if you think about getting feedback from the plus, so people who know more than you, the minus, the people who, who don't, who you often, you learn by teaching other, other people, and then your equals, your peers around you. Any other questions? We have two here and one here. Um, I really like the way that you talk about um, doing things constantly and small. I've, um, my husband calls it the good scary, but I still find it really scary. And so sometimes I find that really hard to get over. But sometimes we're not linked with people. How do we get a group of people around us to give that advice, be mentors, those kind of things, if you've sat at home thinking about an idea that may solve a problem, yeah. um, but how do you get in contact with people um, that can be those mentors? Yeah, so it's, it's really hard to find mentors and there's more people wanting a mentor than there are mentors available. That is just the way it works. And I had this myself. So when I came up with the idea for my business, 
I'm living, I'm working in a, with writers, I'm in Yorkshire in a valley with less than 5,000 people. You know, I'm not, and I have an idea for a tech startup. You know, it's like there was nobody on my doorstep. So I had to go out and actively look for people who could help me. And you find online forums. I mean, there is so much online that it doesn't always have to be face-to-face. -face. So there are communities, and I joined um, a community of, of women in technology, even though I wouldn't call myself that. It was like, but they were the people who knew. So I just started, meet, you know, messaging and then going along to events. I mean, Meetup is phenomenal. If you just type in your local town into Meetup and find out the amazing stuff that's going on. But you do need to, it does take time, but you can find coaches and mentors around you. But you, yeah, I would say do your research and spend time doing it. And particularly if you're looking for a mentor, like a one-on-one -on -one relationship, um, you have to figure out if someone's the right, the right person for you for that. So you have to you know, meet them or have a Skype call, you know, ask the right questions. And don't just ask people to meet you for a coffee. You know, reach out why. Why are you contacting them? What, what, what have they done that's interesting? People like to be told they've done something great. I love that thing you wrote. You know, reach out and say that. I mean, LinkedIn is amazing. It's a pain in the ass. But it's, it's really good for you know, reaching out to people that you see at conferences that you've heard or you've read or you've read their blogs and make those connections. And you can quite, again, quite quickly build your network and tap into what's going on out there. But I would say you have to, whether it's even metaphorically, leave your house to do that. Get out, get out of your own head, basically, and connect with other people. Mm -hmm. Question here. Uh, my actually my interest is uh, around that um, how you you feel this uh, moment we are in in the role of technology. On the one hand, we use social media to connect and it's a positive force. Do you get the sense that most of the new ideas, most entrepreneurs are in that online space? Um, how do you, how do you think it's panning out? Are we past the hype, past the peak moment, or is it? Are we still going to be all talking about apps? Um, yeah. apps I, are the thing. <laughs> I think we're still in the hype cycle, and I think the kind of startup um, publicity is you know it's there. Those are the stories we hear. But for most people who have side hustles, it's genuinely not you know, glamorous technology, it's not apps, it's, it's products and services, it's often physical stuff they're doing and they're selling. You know, there might be, technology offers us amazing platforms and opportunities, so lots of people, you know, monetize their YouTube channel, giving advice on all sorts of things, you know, that's, that's a side hustle. So you can use technology, but um, there's a whole makers movement mm -hmm. out there, and there's also a whole no code movement out there. So you can tap into things like uh, Product Hunt is an amazing community of makers as well. It's worth sort of checking out those spaces to see what people are using and what tools are there that can give you those platforms and opportunities. I should have done this before, but I wanted to do a straw poll. How many of you in the audience have a side hustle? Oh, blinked. Okay, that's not too bad. What I was um, curious about, Beck, a lot of it is about vulnerability, I think, and checking in with yourself. I really identified with the question about energy, mm. but there's, a, there's almost like a check-in thing with yourself that you have to do. And how do you build that? I don't know if that is grit 
or yeah. resilience or because you could expose yourself to all these communities, yeah. all these things, but really the litmus test is really internal. So how do you, how do you build that? So I think uh, confidence is the thing that holds so many of us back and it is, um, it's, the, it's the biggest barrier and it's the hardest one to sort of overcome. Mm. But um, I'm going to repeat myself and say, start small, mm. you know, because there are really small steps that each of us can take. And it's like when you get, it's like building a habit of resilience or learning or growth that, you know, if you try something and you get some form of positive feedback, it makes you more likely to yeah. keep going. So it's racking up those small wins will help build your confidence before you actually really notice it. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, fear is a, a constant. You know, you do have to do stuff that scares you. You know, this scares me hugely. <laughs> but, you know, I'm here and, uh, you know, I'm learning. Yeah. So it's, I think, again, and have people to support you. But but really do start small. Because I think if you can look back, if you make a note of what you've done, you can look back quite quickly. You know, track your little successes. You know, put gold stars on a sheet or something. See how often you've done something. See how it felt. Review what that was like. Mm -hmm. And focus on that stuff. Mm. I think we have time for, like, one more round of questions. So anybody, all these side hustlers in the room, any questions? No? Again. How long did it take you Wait from on the mic? Wait on the mic? Oh. I think I'm loud enough. How long did it take you to get from idea to your first round of funding? Oh, years. Years. Absolutely. It took years. Um, and I was constantly prototyping. So, and because it was self-funded, that slows it down. So what investment does is it helps you move a lot faster. So a lot of startup accelerators, people pitch with an idea with perhaps a little bit of proof of concept, but they go in without having very much. And again, particularly in the American, that all the hype around that is they just, you know, show up with an idea and they get all that money and then they build it from nothing. I mean, my feeling is I don't think that's particularly helpful and that's where you get those huge failures. And it's not, that's not a great thing. What, what have you really learned from getting millions of pounds and wasting it all. I would say it's far better to stay in that space, learn about your audience, figure out what they need and test something and get genuine traction. And there is a point where it's enough, it's compelling enough. And it can be number of users, number of people you've helped, number of people who've bought something. But yeah, it takes a long time. Okay, thank you so much for that, Beck. Um, I think I would like to ask you, what would be your top three tips for someone sitting on an idea and they're waiting to be brave enough to enter in the world with it? Yeah. What are your top takeaways? So the first one is um, I tell somebody. So just get it. Get it out of your head and in the world in the smallest possible way. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be... I mean, it could just be a conversation. It could be, it could be a tweet or a blog. Sometimes people like to write there, there, there. But I'd get, get it out of your head. Um, I'm just trying to think the next few things. Um, and learn from, learn from the feedback you get. Yeah, there's... I don't know, I could talk about this forever. There's a whole process. <laughs> but no, I'll say one thing. Just get it out of your head and into the world in the smallest possible way. And that can be a name, 
a conversation, writing about it. It could be something physical you mock up. You can make a little screen. You can do a presentation. Just get it out of here and into the world and, and just see what people think. Yeah. yeah, make it real. Great. Thank you so much, Beg. Um, I'm sorry, but we have to wrap up now. Um, thank you all for coming and all your excellent questions. If you have a chance, if you hadn't had a chance to ask a question in front of a big room, um, Beck will be in the in the foyer signing her book, um, "How to Have a Happy Hustle." Um, if you'd like to know more about the RSA, our research program, and our fellowship, please sign up via our website or head to our coffee house in Rothmells and grab a coffee with a fellow person who's also a side hustler. Um, you're likely to bump into a fellow or myself, a staff member, and you can learn more about our current work. Um, thank you so much for being such an amazing audience and for coming to see Beck. And please join me in thanking her for an amazing presentation. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.